grab your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 14. Before I married my wife Amber, there was one year between the time I graduated college and the time of our wedding. So there was one year when I lived alone in a very small one-bedroom apartment. Growing up with four sisters and having roommates in college, I had never lived completely alone for that long. So I discovered that in my little bachelor pad, I could live how I wanted. I had some freedom to do things how I liked. If I wanted the apartment to be freezing cold, I could crank the A.C. down. If I wanted to turn all the lights on, I could turn all the lights on. If I wanted to take a 30-minute shower, by golly, I could take a 30-minute shower. I could also eat how I wanted. Now, I didn't have a dishwasher or an oven or a full-size fridge, so I did have to make do. I decided to exclusively eat off paper plates and plastic utensils. I did have a microwave, though, so I ate a lot of Hot Pockets. Uh, But I could also make my own schedule. If I wanted to sleep in on Saturday, I did. If I wanted to run to Dairy Queen at 8.30 p.m. on a Tuesday night, I did. And after just one year of living that way, I got married. And what do you think happened next? (laughs) My wonderful wife, who I love so dearly, Amber, moved in. And that's when I realized that some things were going to change. (laughs) First thing I noticed was we got these dinner place settings where everything matched. Like, I had no idea your plates and your bowls should match. My apartment began to smell good all the time. Uh, We got a bath mat and a toothbrush holder. That was new. My schedule changed. My TV shows changed. My diet changed. I felt as though I had lost some of my freedom. I could no longer live how I wanted all the time, but now I also had to live how she wanted here's what I found. It was better. (laughs) It was so much better. It turns out I like fabric softener (laughs) and those little Glade wall plug-ins. I liked lamps and eating salad on occasion. And I even learned to deal with those extra decorative pillows that kept popping up everywhere. Giving up the freedom of my singleness to be married to my wife turned out to be one of the best decisions I've ever made. And I gladly continue to give up my own way every day, well, most of the time, (laughs) to experience something better. Becoming a part of a church is a similar kind of change. When we join a church, we become bound together. We become a part of one body, one family And that requires us to change some of the way we live, to consider the needs of others before ourselves and to even lay down some of our freedoms for the sake of one another. That's what I want to show you this morning as we continue walking through Romans chapter 14. Last week, Pastor Jonathan covered the first half of chapter 14 with a message entitled, Matters of Conscience. In part one, he explained that Paul was addressing a particular dispute that was taking place in the first century church in Rome. There were some Christians in the church, likely from a Jewish background, who felt compelled to continue following some of the Jewish customs they grew up with. For example, they were raised to honor God by following a strict diet. Even though they'd become Christians, they chose to continue not eating certain things, like meat, in case it had been contaminated. They also chose to continue following the Jewish calendar, recognizing days like the Sabbath and other holidays. 
Then there were other Christians in the church, likely from a Gentile background, meaning they didn't grow up as Jews. These people knew they were free to eat whatever food they wanted to the glory of God. And they also knew that every day of the week was an opportunity to honor God. So they didn't celebrate the same days and holidays as the Jewish believers. And these differences between these two groups caused conflict. So Paul wrote chapter 14 to help them find unity. He explained that these differences they were facing were not a matter of sin, but rather they were matters of conscience. And as such, they needed to learn to live together with those differences and not judge one another. In the second part of chapter 14, Paul continues to deal with this same dispute, but with a slightly different emphasis. He wanted them to see this key point. Here it is. You ready? Loving your brother or sister is more important than living your freedom. Let me say that again. Loving your brother or sister is more important than living your freedom. Let's walk through our text verse by verse and see that point together. Look with me at Romans chapter 14. Let's start with verse 13. Paul wrote, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. There's a summary of last week, first part of chapter 14. He says, don't pass judgment on one another. Now, it doesn't mean we should never judge one another. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that Christians should judge one another at times when it comes to matters of sin. But this chapter has to do with matters of conscience. So when it comes to these non-essential differences, we're not to judge one another. We're not to attack or belittle or look down on or gossip about or condemn someone on the basis of a matter of conscience. That was last week. Here's the new angle for this week. He says, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, what does that mean? What is a stumbling block? Well, if you grew up in church like I did, this was one of those Christianese phrases that we threw around. Are you guys familiar with the, the language Christianese? Well, don't, don't worry, I am fluent in this language, okay? So, so let me just throw some out. I want you to raise your hand to see if you've heard these, these Christianese phrases. How about this one? We've got to pray for a hedge of protection. You heard that one? I always wondered why it was just a hedge. I don't know about that. Uh, how about this one? We need to pray for traveling mercies. Have you heard that one? Okay. Here's another one. If you need prayer, you can come down to the front and we will lay hands on you. You heard that? Some of you grew up in a place where to lay hands on someone meant something very different. <laughs> There's other terms we use like quiet time or backsliding. And my personal favorite straight from the South, bless his heart. It's one I use, use often or people use towards me. But stumbling block, that's become one of those Christianese phrases. I remember in the days of youth group, that's another church phrase, whenever we had pool parties, appropriate swim attire was required so as not to become a stumbling block. We were told we shouldn't go to PG-13 movies because someone might see us and we would be a stumbling block. We shouldn't listen to certain kinds of music because the music might be a stumbling block. They had the concept right, but unfortunately, the application wasn't always the best. Stumbling block in the Bible is a metaphor used to describe when you do something that might cause someone else to fall into sin. So what was the stumbling block taking place in the Roman church? Well, let's keep reading. Look at verses 14 through 16. Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. 
But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Here Paul makes clear the stumbling block he's talking about in this passage is violating the conscience of another believer. Let's think for a minute about that word, conscience. The idea of us having a conscience. This is a biblical idea. Your conscience, what we also sometimes refer to as your gut. It's that inner knowledge of what's right and what's wrong. Uh, We learned in Romans 2 that every person has God's law written on their heart. This is why everyone somewhere deep down knows what is right and what is wrong. My children instinctively know when they're doing something wrong, when they have that little devilish grin on. So we all have a conscience, and when we violate our conscience, we feel guilty, right? That little alarm goes off in your head that says, "Uh uh-uh, this is wrong, this is bad, this is bad. But what happens? Because we're sinners, our conscience often does not stop us. We choose to do what we know to be wrong, and we violate our conscience. And here's the scary part. We know that over time, our conscience changes you probably experienced this. The first time you did that one particular sin, that one bad thing, you felt so bad. You were eaten up with all kinds of guilt. But the next time, you felt less guilty and less guilty and less guilty until eventually there was no guilt at all and your conscience had become seared or broken. And sadly, that, that's where I think most people live today. It's where our culture lives. We have broken and misguided consciences, so we're confused as to what even is right or wrong anymore. But as Christians, we we learn in Romans 12 that our minds are being renewed. As we become more like Christ, our conscience becomes more like His. Our conscience begins to be conformed to the Word of God so that it works more like it's supposed to. We learn here, being a Christian doesn't automatically mean you have a perfect conscience. So while, yes, we should trust our conscience, we should not do so without question. Our conscience needs to be recalibrated. We need to make sure we align with what's right and wrong in the Word of God. All right, so that's the biblical idea of a conscience, and that's what Paul is talking about here. He says, look, I know, and I'm persuaded that nothing is unclean in itself. He's talking about food. Paul's conscience did not prevent him from eating food that he used to think was unclean when he was a Jew. Food like pork. And this is something that Jesus himself affirmed in Matthew 15. Jesus said, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what it, it's what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. So as Christians, we learn from Jesus, we learn from Paul, we're not under the old covenant. Therefore, we're not bound by its dietary restrictions. We can eat what we want. And living in the barbecue capital of the world, we say amen. Because food, for us, is not unclean. But Paul says something next that seems to contradict that. He says, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. How does that work? How can something become unclean just by thinking it's unclean? Well, again, he's talking about the conscience. If someone's conscience says, hey, that's wrong for you to eat. That is unclean food. Then for them, it would be wrong for them to just eat it anyway and violate their conscience. This tells us this wasn't just about food. This this whole dispute for Paul wasn't really about what you should and shouldn't eat. Rather, it was about the motivation behind eating the food that mattered. It was about caring for people's consciences. That's why Paul says, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, if he sees you eating meat, 
and his conscience does not allow him to do so, then you may cause him to stumble. And you are not walking in love. You're not being loving toward your brother. And so he says, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That's, that's really strong language. That, that word destroy in the Bible speaks of eternal judgment. That means by violating the conscience of another Christian, you could potentially lead him into sin and destroy them. And he makes it even stronger by saying, this isn't just anybody we're talking about here. This is your brother or sister in Christ for whom Jesus died. I mean, that's the key here, and that should be at the forefront of our minds when we're dealing with a fellow believer with another Christian. Someone who particularly is a part of our local church. We need to remember that Jesus died for that person. And if Jesus gave up his life for them, I can give up this little freedom of mine for them. If Jesus sacrificed his very life, I can sacrifice my freedom. Yes, I know that no food is unclean and I'm free to eat what I want. But if my freedom is going to cause my brother harm, I will gladly take the way of Christ and lay it down for their sake. Here's where Paul makes clear it's not really about the food. Look at verses 17 through 19. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Here, here Paul tells us what's really important. In the ranking system of the kingdom of God, righteousness, peace, and joy are more important than eating and drinking. So if you've got to give up one of those things, you should go without food or without drink before you go without righteousness or peace or joy. We know peace is, is really important to Paul here because he mentions it again, verse 19. He says, pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. This is clearly, this, this is important to him. That local churches be marked by peace. That we build one another up, not tear down. And that should be our goal when we show up on Sunday mornings, when we get together as a church, we should be asking, hey, how can I think less about me and what I want, and how can I build someone else up? continues to make this point. Look at verses 20 and 21. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. He, he reiterates again. He says, look, everything's clean. As Christians, we have the freedom. We can eat what we like. It's not about the food we eat. Rather, it's the way in which you're eating it. It's not okay to destroy the work of God, to cause a brother or sister to stumble. So he tells the Roman church, if that means you not eating, then that's better, that you go hungry than that you harm another believer. He mentions here for the first time that drinking wine was also a part of this dispute. This was likely similar to the whole eating meat thing. Wine in the first century was sometimes used as a sacrifice, as a drink offering to a foreign uh, idol. So just like with the meat, some of the Jewish Christians may have chosen not to drink wine in fear that it would be unclean. Paul, again, he says, hey, if you need to go without wine so your brother doesn't stumble, then you should. And just to make sure nothing else is left out, he says, or anything else, anything that causes your brother to stumble, put it aside. If there's any activity that's causing my brother to stumble, I should refrain from it. Even if I'm free to do it, even if to me it's not a big deal, I should be willing to lay down my right for their sake. 
Here's how he sums it all up, verses 22 and 23. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let me make clear, Paul's not saying we should not share our faith. He's not talking, we know that would contradict everything else in, uh, in the Bible. So obviously, what he means here by faith is your personal belief on that particular matter of conscience. He says, hey, keep it between you and God. Doesn't mean we can't ever talk about our opinion or our conviction on something. And it doesn't mean we can't try and help another believer see our perspective. But what he's saying is that we don't need to rub it in. We don't need to boast about our freedom or to use it to look down on or to belittle another Christian. If you have the freedom to eat meat and drink wine, be humble about it. He says, if you have the freedom to do this without violating your conscience, you're, you're blessed in that. That's great. But if you have doubts about what you're doing, then it's wrong for you to do that because you're not eating from faith. We can imagine uh, one of those Jewish Christians in the first century who really believed they should not eat meat. Did you know they kept seeing all their other Christian friends going out for barbecue and Man, that rub and that sauce, and oh, it looks so good. So they said, yeah, you know, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to go out and eat with them, even though my conscience is telling me not to do it. For them to do that, to violate their own conscience, according to this passage, it would be wrong. And here's why. Here's the key, the last verse. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's really kind of startling to think about tells us first off we sin way more than we know we tend to think of sin as when we're doing something that's like explicitly bad lying killing stealing hating whatever we know those are sins but even good things we do if we do not do them from faith can be sinful so then what does it mean to do something that proceeds from faith well it's to do something that is motivated by desire to honor and glorify god Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How much? Do all to the glory of God. That means you can do everything in such a way that it honors God. Even mundane things like eating and drinking can be done to the glory of God. That's what it means for an action to proceed from faith. It's done with the right motivation for the right reason. It's not done for selfish gain. It's not done to please other people. It's not done out of fear or worry. It's done with an attitude of honoring God above all. Here's the beautiful thing. You can do that in your job. You can do that in your hobbies. You can do that in your resting. You can do that in your enjoyment of things in life. When we do things with faith, with a heart to please God and glorify Him and a heart to serve others, we can do all things to the glory of God. That's Paul's message to the first century church. What about us today? This dispute that these early Christians dealt with is not one that we have to deal with today, is it? We don't have a group of people in our church that I'm aware of who follow the Jewish dietary laws. I'm not aware of any arguments breaking out in our classes that concern eating and drinking. 
But we do have other matters of conscience that we disagree over. Uh, We talked about a big one last week. We talked about the topic of alcohol. Now those of you who missed last week are really kicking yourself. (laughs) But there are other ones too. And again, I'm talking about things that are not made explicit in Scripture. I'm not talking about core essential truths about who Jesus is or matters of sin. Those are not things we can divide over because Scripture is clear. I'm talking about things that are less clear, less essential, areas where we have to use our best wisdom and judgment to honor the Lord. Talking about disagreements like how people should dress at church. Maybe some of you believe that God deserves our best when we come to worship and we should honor him and how we present ourselves. While others of you may say, no, God doesn't look on the outside, but he looks on the heart. And we should actually dress more casual to make guests and other people feel comfortable. That's one of the issues we disagree over. Here are some others. These are some things I've personally witnessed Christians argue about. Hymns or modern worship songs. Public school or homeschool. Dancing or no dancing. We we were told growing up that young Christians should never hold hands because hand-holding might lead to dancing. (laughs) Here's some more that we heard people talk about growing up. Rated R movies, bathing suits, social media usage, dating, playing sports on Sundays, reading Harry Potter books. How about politics? Anything there we might see differently? Yeah, I mean, we could go on and on here because, look, we all have different experiences, different things we are passionate about. And that creates an abundance of things that we could disagree over and even divide over. I mean, if we just went around the room, there would be nothing that we would all say, yeah, I agree on that. And believe me, we know churches, that they split over all sorts of silly things. So here's what I want to do. I want to close by giving you three quick takeaways straight from the passage concerning how we should deal with matters of conscience. Real quick, here we go. Number one, in matters of conscience, walk in love. Walk in love. When it comes to a matter of conscience, as Christians, we have a certain level of freedom. While we believe that God's word is sufficient... The Bible does not tell us exactly what to do in every situation. The Bible doesn't tell us how to vote in elections or what movies our kids should be allowed to watch or how much time we should spend on Facebook. But God has given us his spirit, his word, and a conscience. He gave us those things so that we can do our best to make our own decisions on these non-essential matters. That's what we call Christian liberty. We have some freedom to form our own convictions on issues that the Bible is not as clear on. But here's where we need to be cautious. Liberty has its limits because liberty is not more important than love. Let me say that again. Liberty has its limits because liberty is not more important than love. We cannot use our liberty to tear down another believer. That's what was happening in the, the Roman church. Love has to be our highest ideal as we relate to one another. So if my freedom on a matter of conscience is causing harm to my brother, then I need to lay down my freedom for their sake. Think back about the alcohol example. It's an easy one to think through. If your conscience allows you to drink alcohol in moderation, but maybe you have someone over to your home who who their conscience uh, believes they should abstain, maybe they believe it's wrong to drink, maybe they struggle with self-control in this area, 
then for you to lay down your freedom would mean not to drink alcohol in front of them, not to offer it to them, but to to lay that down for their sake. And this applies to other matters of conscience too. If my political opinions are stirring up my brother and causing him to stumble in anger, then maybe I need to lovingly shut my mouth. We can't allow things that are non-essential to tear down someone who Christ died for, to grieve a believer or to cause them to fall into sin. But, but Micah, what, what if my brother or sister's conscience is wrong? You ever notice it's always the other person that's wrong? <laughs> Am I supposed to just be their slave and do whatever they want me to do because they got their feelings hurt? Well, here's where the second point comes in. Number two, in matters of conscience, pursue peace. When we have a dispute with a matter of conscience, and we will, we will, it's part of it. Rather than breaking fellowship, we need to pursue peace. So rather than saying, oh, that guy, he's just a Pharisee, he's a legalist. Or saying, oh, he is just too worldly, he he is just one of those liberals. Instead of that, we should try this, this radical new method for dealing with conflict. I'm not sure if you've heard of this. It's called sitting down face-to-face and listening and asking questions like, hey, on, on this issue, why do you think this way? Or how did you, you come to that conclusion? And maybe, just maybe, your conscience might be changed. You might find out that, dare I say it, you're wrong about something. Or you might help them see that they're wrong. Or you might just agree to disagree, and that's okay too. God has not called us to always be right. None of us are always going to be right, but he has called you to pursue peace and live peaceably with all. And Look, I'm not advocating for moral relativism where what's right for you is right for you, what's right for me is right for me. Paul makes clear here, he takes a side. He says when it comes to eating meat, Those of you who are abstaining are wrong. Paul believed God had made nothing to be unclean. He took a side. So this doesn't mean we have to constantly limit our freedom by being afraid we're going to offend someone somewhere. We just need to be mindful. We need to follow our conscience. And when conflict arises, we need to pursue peace quickly. And when need be, we may need to lay down our freedom for the sake of someone else. That's second. Here's the last and most important point, number three, in matters of conscience, proceed from faith. Above all things, our goal should be to live in such a way that honors Jesus and places faith in him. If your conscience is going off like a fire alarm, do not make a habit of turning it off and doing it anyway. Go to God's word. Go to a brother or sister that you trust, that you respect. Get their wisdom on the issue. Maybe your conscience will be confirmed, or maybe it needs to be recalibrated a bit. Then choose to be faithful. Just be faithful to God. And look, I know this is a lot to think about. Maybe this is a different way to think about things than you were taught. Some of you grew up in families and churches where you stayed as far away from pretty much anything that could potentially be bad. I mean, some of y'all grew up in families where veggie tales was too worldly. (laughs) If that's your background, don't proceed according to tradition or according to legalism. Proceed from faith. But on the other hand, some of you grew up in families where pretty much anything was acceptable as long as you didn't get arrested. 
Look, if that's your background, don't proceed from what you can get away with or what no one else knows about or from what feels right. Proceed from faith. Look, when you boil it down, we're really not that much different from the early church. Just like them, we have different people from different backgrounds with different views on different things who now have found ourselves united in one Savior. Through Jesus, we're all just a bunch of sinners saved by grace. And through Jesus, we're now this one big crazy family. But we have to make a choice to live like it. It doesn't happen naturally. We have to make a choice to lay aside things that are not essential, the things that could tear us down, the things that could pull us apart and say, you know what, Jesus is more important than that. You are more important than that to me. I care more about you than I do about being right and getting my way. That's a choice we have to make. I want to challenge you to make that choice today. Let's bow our heads.